Welcome, everyone. Uh, Tuesday, January 10, New Year. Not much has changed except we turn the calendar. As has become our custom, I'll start off with uh, three dates in history that I selected. First one, I didn't even know, and shows you what an ignoramus I am. In 1861, in 1861, Florida seceded from from the Union. I never even thought about that. I never knew if they were in the Union, whatever. Anyway, Florida in 1861 seceded from the Union. They joined the Confederacy. Who would have thunk? 1920, the League of Nations was formed in Geneva precursor to um, the United Nations. And in case you're wondering why I led in with the David Bowie song, it's because in 2016, six years ago, David Bowie passed away. I was into David Bowie. Uh, I thought he was terrific. So anyway, those are your three dates in history. So um, many of you have been asking for a while, um, if we could get a, an expert on financials into this space. We've had a lot of wonderful expert speakers on a variety of topics. I guess it was proponents of energy speakers, but we never had a financials guru. Well, today your prayers are going to be answered. Charlie Peabody, um, many of you may not know who he is, especially some of the younger investors out there. Um, he's been around as long as I have. He started his career, I believe, in it was in 1981. He's been on the been on the street since 1981. He was uh, I ranked banks analyst for um, Kidder Peabody, and w- w- also um, was a leading analyst at other uh, bulge bracket firms on the street: Drexel, Merrill, UBS. I may have missed some, but he's been around, and um, he knows where all the bodies lie. And so if you've got some impolite questions you want to ask about financials, and I, I forgot to mention, he is he heads up Portalis Partners, which is a specialist um, uh, firm. Uh, I don't mean specialist and stock exchange specialist, but they specialize in financials. And so if there are questions which you, know, you might deem to be impolite to ask your friendly bulge bank, a banks analyst, have no fear. Charlie is here. So financials have been, you know, front and center of a lot of things. There's an old adage that if financials aren't acting well, it's hard for the market to do well. Of late, they've been acting okay, and I think Charlie actually, in the short run, is uh, somewhat positively uh, uh, disposed towards the financials. But I'm not going to steal his thunder. So, in any event, Charlie, uh, please unmute yourself. Great that you made it here. Um, Thank you. Can you hear us? Okay. I can. Can you hear me? Yeah, you're you're perfect. You're perfect. So, um, you know, welcome to Twitter Spaces. Uh, I know it's your first time. It's your coming out party, as it were. Don't worry. We're going to be nice to you. And by the way, you've got, I'm just warning you, I see some of the characters you have in the room right now. Got some really sharp hookies here. So I think uh, I think you're going to enjoy this. I think we're all going to learn a lot. So thank you for um, being willing to spend the time with us. Charlie has an error, by the way. Um, so we're going to try and keep it tight. So let's get into it. Um, 
so Charlie, uh, you know, there are a lot of moving uh, parts right now in the uh, financial landscape. Markets gyrating all over the place, rates gyrating all over the place. You know, we saw the increase in interest rates, I don't know, maybe ever, whatever. Um, and there's a lot of reset going on. I mean, the housing market, you know, people can't afford to move now because mortgages have gone from, you know, mortgages rates have doubled. Um, companies with floating rate debt are going to have a lot of problems. Um, there's the old saw about, you know, uh, steepening yield curve is, uh, is, is good for banks, et cetera, et cetera. But life is not always so simple. So Charlie, they're really here to you speak. I just want to, I want to trigger you. Um, what are sort of, um, I don't know, of late the last couple of weeks, what are sort of top of mind topics? What are the things you're focused on? You're concerned about what's got your attention right now, Charlie? Sure. Um, well, listen, first of all, thanks, George, for hosting this. I appreciate it. And I'm hoping I'll learn as much from the kind of questions that are being asked as I, as much wisdom as I can attempt to impart on, on the subject matter here. Um, but obviously the, the big, you know, elephant in the room is, you know, when does the recession or credit cycle from a, from a bank point of view, when does the credit cycle start to hit? And, our position, you know, basically going back to January of 2022, was that we would not have a recession in 2022, and probably not until the middle of 23. And we continue on that course. Um, but the fact that there's a recession looming out there has caused most in institutional portfolio managers to shun the banks, um, saying, why would I want to buy one ahead of the credit cycle? Things are only going to get worse. And well, I agree that banks typically don't find a secular bottom until the trough of a recession. We've been trying to play the squiggles along the way. And, and so we started off 2022 very negative on the banks, calling for about a 30% uh, correction into the spring, and then thought they would bottom during the summer and then end the year with a 30 or 40% rally. Um, that rally did happen in October, November, got truncated in December, and we think there's still more to go into the um, you know, spring of this year. So we're starting off this year with a constructive stance on the banks, um, but we think they'll end on a sour note because we do believe by the second half of the year, the credit cycle as it relates to the bank fundamentals will start to emerge. Um, so yes, we're being cute by staying constructive here, um, but, you know, we do think that people have over-anticipated the credit cycle, and we just don't see, you know, the, the negatives on the credit front um, being as significant for banks just yet. And in the meantime, what we've been focused on is what we call PPNR, pre-tax, pre-provision net revenues. And we found that banks have a, a much stronger correlation with that variable. Um, it's basically total revenues minus um, operating expenses. And it, that PPNR um, has been accelerating year over year for the banking industry. And uh, it will get even stronger here in the fourth quarter. Um, so we have PPNR rising 16% year over year. So what that really that PPNR tells you is how much earnings power do the banks have to absorb um, the credit costs that are likely to emerge over the next 12 to 24 months. 
And we don't think credit costs will peak in their rise until sometime in 2024. So we are anticipating at least a doubling of charge-offs and um, you know, loan losses going into um, 2024 and staying you know, high for about two years. But even with that kind of forecast, um, we still think banks can you know, generate pretty good earnings. And even this year, we have earnings growing this year for the banking industry. So the, the underlying fundamentals, you know, this time around versus 08, 09, when we were very, very bearish, um, is, is much more constructive. The banks have done a good job in their risk management, rebuilding their balance sheets, rebuilding their capital, et cetera. Um, if, if there is a more serious recession rather than, you know, a, a mild recession, and we're, we're in the mild recession camp at the moment, if there's a more serious recession, then estimates are way too high. Um, we are going to see estimate cuts at some point this year. Um, but we don't think we'll see the balance sheet impairments that have characterized prior cycles. And, and that's a big difference um, because while earning, we could have an earnings recession for the banking industry, we don't think we'll have a balance sheet recession. And so when we come to the other side of the recession, the banks this time around will have their capital intact and we'll be able to go on the offensive day one. And that's a big difference versus what we've seen in, in the past three cycles. So uh, we think the banks could emerge in the other side of a recession with their capital intact on the offensive and earning you know, mid-teen to high-teen types of uh, ROTCEs. So from a longer-term perspective, we're actually very constructive on the banks. From a very short-term perspective, we're constructive. On an intermediate-term basis, we're cautious. So, it's sorry, actually, George, I apologize for talking no, too no, long. No, 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 that's extremely helpful for setting, setting the room. Um, and you, you put a lot, a lot out there. So you and I have known each other a long while, and um, I want this conversation to kind of run along the lines we would normally be if we were sitting in a conference room together. So let, let's stay with that. So I'm known as being uh, leaning bearish, if not perma-bear or whatever. And listening to you talk, I must confess, it sounds like a pretty benign environment that you're discussing. Yes, credit quality will deteriorate um, as we get into a recession, but the way you're describing it, it sounds like they're pretty, in terms of their capital situation, and, and, and the extent to which they're leveraged or not leveraged in comparison to the last cycle, they're in pretty reasonable shape, are they not? They are. Um, and because of that, they're probably, m many of the banks, you know, um, postponed or suspended their share buyback programs last year. Um, when they start reporting earnings on Friday of this week, you're going to see uh, organizations like J.P. Morgan and Wells Fargo, you know, re re start their their buyback programs and those are going to be you know multi-billion dollar buyback programs you know nine ten billion twelve billion dollar types of buyback programs and you know wells fargo we think can retire five percent of their shares this year so the capital you know is um getting back to the point of being excessive and in in the interim their their earnings power is improving which allows them to rebuild their capital as they you know deplete it through share buybacks and and dividend increases so Charlie, you always have uh, one of the things I always liked about our dialogues over the year was you always had a very, very macro aware, a very macro, uh, big macro approach looking at the financials. And you know, for all the macro tourists out there, um, I guess I'll self-identify, and there are many in the room. 
Um, you know, if you look at, if you read one more research report or a Zero Hedge article about, you know, the yield curve is the most inverted it's ever been, blah, 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 you know, and every time you get an inverted yield curve, you get a recession, blah, okay. So we all know that, but, and so if we get the recession, you know, it'll be the most advertised recession ever, perhaps. And in fact, recent economic data, looking at the Atlanta Fed Nowcast data for fourth quarter 22 showed things actually improving. Without uh, doubt. And, 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 and so... I think it was Bob Farrell who once said, you know, when everyone is expecting one thing, it's not worth investing in that because either it's not going to happen or it'll happen, but it's already discounted. So I'm kind of arguing against myself here. I'm just sort of meandering. I'm, I'm, it's a rant and, and maybe I'll trigger you here somehow. So how do you think about the fact we've got this inverted yield curve, yet given how far the Fed was behind the curve, rates were incredibly stimulative. Uh, and then I'll put some other logs on the fire. You look at and, and, and shoot me down because I'm a, you know, I'm a hack. Um, the real credit, the real debt accumulation this cycle, it's been the sovereigns that have gone crazy with, you know, piling up debt. And I'm not saying balance sheets are wonderful, but I know, for instance, consumer consumer debt serve, ability to service debts, that ratio is extremely high right now. Um, you know, the, those ratios are, are reasonably healthy. Corporate ones are reasonably healthy. The real debt accumulation problem has been in the sovereign sector. So, what does that mean for the banks? Does that mean we have a less bad credit cycle, that the, that the risk is really with the sovereigns and the governments? Or <laughs> So I guess the fact that the debt ratios aren't so bad and the fact that we've got an inverted yield curve and the fact that, you know, uh, only up until recently were real rates, they're not even real rates, aren't it? We can argue about it. But we really haven't had significant positive real rates for any sustainable period of time. So you put that up in the blender and shake it all up. What does that mean to you? How does, how does that speak to you? Yeah. Don't get me wrong, George. We're going to have a credit cycle and it's going to be ugly. I, I just think there are two things. One, the, the banking system is much more prepared this time around and their risk management practices have been much more solid this time around. But more than that is the, the problems are really going to be surfaced in a big way outside the banking system. And we're already starting to see that. So I, I'm I'm pessimistic in the sense that I, I do think we're going to have a very rough credit cycle. I'm optimistic in the sense I think banks are much better positioned to to absorb that. the The other thing is, you know, uh, you know, if you were to read our you know outlook for twenty three piece, you know, which we published in December, we were saying we're going to start off the, the year with a you know maybe fifteen twenty percent rally through the spring. But then it's going to be sell in May and go away. And you're not going to want to even look at potentially buying these things until sometime deep into the fourth quarter at the earliest on the assumption that, um, you know, credit costs will peak sometime in 2024. Um, so we're, we're not being Pollyannish in, in terms of the credit cycle. Um, but let, let me just throw out some numbers, for, for example. Okay, so JP Morgan, which is a major credit card lender is going to have credit card charge-offs this year somewhere around 1.5% on the full year. And next year, they're projecting 2.6%. So it's a big jump, and and this is a dilemma for me, but I'll come back to that. It's a big jump in terms of the dollar amount that charge-offs are going to go. But relative to history, a 2.6% charge-off ratio on a credit card portfolio is very low. You know, you would think at least 300, 400 basis points, which is kind of where I'm building my model for 2024. Um, and that's the dilemma. Is is the marketplace going to worry about 
the rate of change, you know, from one and a half to 2.6, or are they going to worry about the level 2.6 being very low by historical standards? And if it's 2.6, then the PPNR or the pre-tax pre-provision net revenues are going to be so strong that they're going to be able to absorb that without significant impairment to earnings. Yeah, Charlie, what's Sorry. drive what's driving the expansion of PPNR? Is it is it net interest margins expanding? Is it loan volumes? What is driving that growth? At the moment, it's both, and and that's the big worry. I mean, if, if there are three things that you hear on terms of institutional portfolio managers pushing back on a constructive. I mean, the overall one is is why buy them ahead of a recession, and I and I understand that. I, I, you know, from a secular long term point of view, I agree. Um, the, but the other is that we're going to see peak NII net interest income, which is what we call top line revenues or net interest income. It, we're going to see that peak here in the fourth quarter or first quarter, and that the loan growth that they've enjoyed over 2022 is going to slow as we move towards a recession and that the margins, the net interest margins are going to start contracting. And, you know, we're not, you know, disagreeing with the ultimate direction on those two items, but we think that margins are going to hold up longer than anticipated and that NII is going to keep accelerating through at least April, probably July. And so that gives you a lot of earnings power to absorb those rising credit costs that are inevitable in 23-24, latter part of 23-24. Charlie, um, as rates have gone up quite sharply over the course of the last 12 months, um, has, has that not had a really beneficial impact on that interest margin in the sense that, you know, they're jacking up, they're not raising deposit rates as much as, 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 as there are lending rates? What, what is it, or let me, I don't put words in your mouth, what is the, what is the impact of the in, substantial increase in rates and the inversion of the yield curve? What has that effect had on bank net interest margins? Yeah, so margins have ex- expanded quite aggressively this year, and, and that's the other bear case argument is that margins are going to peak somewhere here in first quarter of 2023 as what you refer to deposit betas pick up. And as deposit betas do pick up, um, you know, they're they're right now what we call cumulative deposit betas are rounding around 30%. And they're going to probably, you know, peak out somewhere in the 40 50%. And so what it basically means, uh, to, to explain that, what deposit beta is basically mean is how rapidly do your deposit costs go up versus your asset yields, if you will, and in terms of adjusting to the rising rate environment. And deposit costs historically lag the rise in loan yields or other asset yields. And so your margins expand during that period. Now the, the feeling is deposit costs are going to play catch up. Um, with that rise in asset yields, and therefore your margins are going to come under pressure. Um, And the reason we're saying maybe not so fast um, is because there's still, despite QT, the the banking system still has decent liquidity and deposit flows. There are are two elements out there that um, this may get a little arcane, George, so cut me off if I'm getting too much into the weeds. But there are two possible elements out there that could extend that deposit flow in the banking system. The first that I've written a lot about um, since you know November is what we call a potential treasury buyback. And in a treasury buyback, um, the treasury would issue fewer and fewer long-term or coupon securities and more and more T-bills. And if you understand the Fed's balance sheet, 
there are two line items you want to watch on the liability side. What's happening to um, reverse repo balances and what's happening to excess reserves in the banking system. And so far, what we've seen during QT is excess reserves in the banking system have been coming down by half a trillion dollars. But reverse repos have been going very rapidly. The big owner of the reverse repo facility are the money market funds because there's been a dearth of T-bills up until recently. So they parked their excess liquidity in this reverse repo facility where they can get a pretty good yield. On the excess reserve on the Fed's balance sheet, that, that reflects the liquidity in the banking system. That's been coming down because of QT. If the Treasury decides to do a Treasury buyback, they're going to issue excess T-bills, which drains the reverse repo facility that the money market funds are, have their excess liquidity parked in. And they're going to buy back coupon securities. And when they buy back those coupon securities, that creates a deposit for whoever sold that coupon back to the treasury. And that deposit gets um, obviously put into the banking system. So it could extend the liquidity or deposit flows of the banking system through this treasury buyback. And if you, you know, listen to um, the TBAC committee, the treasury borrowing advisory committee, you know, and the back and forth between that committee, which is basically the Wall Street, you know, primary dealers and, and the treasury, you're going to see that there's significant capacity to issue T-bills and buy back coupons. Um, and if the if I've estimated as much as a trillion dollars, because what the treasury has publicly said is they want T-bills to represent about 15 to 20 percent of total marketable securities. And right now we're at the lower end of that range, around 16%. So they have plenty of capacity to issue more T-bills. So that that's one reason why I think that the NIMS, net interest margins, could remain higher for longer because the liquidity in the banking system could be goosed by a treasury buyback. The other thing that's come up more recently is the debt ceiling you know, um, limitations. And that's right now, if, if you looked at the T-bill auctions this week, it's forcing the banking system to issue much more T-bills than anyone anticipated. And, and anytime you think about T-bills being issued, you have to think who is the main buyer of those? And the main buyer of those are the money market funds. So you're drain, you should be starting to drain the reverse repo facility. That should lead to deposits into the banking system. Sorry, I, again, I apologize for being uh, unwinded. You've made it very clear. We do have some uh, <clears throat> smart financial cookies in the room uh, and want to get them here to get a Q&A going. So I don't know if KFAB, you want to jump in or any of the others here, who, um, please have at it, raise your hand. We'll, let's move on. Um, other uh, topics, and, I, and, and I'm sorry if I'm a little bit off base here, but something certainly which is features prominently in the headlines um, is private equity. Um, yeah, you know, a lot of leveraging up uh, by you know, the valuations that um, were paid to take out companies, increasing amounts of leverage, et cetera, et cetera. And I know you don't specifically follow those companies, but uh, do you have any perspective on the potential risk that that might pose? Is it a risk? What's the, is it? Is it large enough to be a problem? And I don't know if Brent thinks that instead, but but let, let me start on this, and then my uh, partner Brent can can clean up my mess. Um, <clears throat> yeah, we are very negative on the private credit, private equity uh, market, 
and we think that it's been a very slow process on their part of recognizing the impairments. And you you know you can see it from the letters that you you uh, the quarterly letters that are put out by some of these investors. They're marking their public portfolios down last year by you know 30, 40 percent, and they're marking their private portfolios down by 10 or 20 percent. You know, it's it, there's a huge lag in the recognition of the impairment in that space. Now there probably will be a catch up in these fourth quarter earnings. And Instacart is a good example. I think what Instacart did another round and you know was de devalued by 20 percent to 10 billion dollars or something like that. Um, and then th there are games being played, um, such as we saw with the BREIT funding. Um, Brent, I don't know if you want to pick it up from there and talk about that or some of the other sure. issues. But yeah, we're very bearish on the private um, sure. equity guys. Charlie, let me, let me just back up. What you said Brent, with some... Just so everyone knows who Brent is. Um, I've known Brent, uh, oh my God, 30 years now, Brent, thereabouts. Oh, um, Brent's a long, I first met Brent when I, I think we, <clears throat> yes, if I'm not mistaken, Brent, Brent eat, eats, frees, and uh, uh, consumes financials. So, Brent, have a Thanks, George and Charlie. Uh, so, just some numbers. Venture capital alone has raised $400 billion since 2020. So, that's $90 billion and then you know, $150 billion, $150 billion in the last three years. It's not like this is new ideas chasing money. This is money chasing investment ideas. So it's money that's created by the Fed. The other thing, private credit markets, private equity and credit, total over a trillion dollars in each of the last five years. All of this money is about to collide with the end of the business cycle. It's pure and simple. It's just staring you in the face. So to that end, these things are opaque, unregulated, and private by definition. So all these transactions that Charlie said are taking place in terms of the marks, they're, they're, they're lagging. They're, they're not taking place. And, and they're hidden. They're obfuscated. As I said, they're opaque, unregulated, and private. So there's a lot of catch-up here. Now, with BREIT, for example, BREIT was essentially a gated um, a fund of Blackstone with, I, I think, order of magnitude, you know, $60 billion in it. And, and they had to prevent outflows. So on their most recent fund, they had to invite uh, University of California in with a $4 billion commitment locked up over uh, five years with uh, a double-digit guaranteed coupon, a 11% guaranteed coupon by BREIT uh, to University of California. So, so the last time I heard something like that happening was, was with uh, Bernie Madoff and his 11%, you know, yeah, yeah, year out return. Yeah, Brent, I was going to say, what type of, uh, what's running, leading question, joke, bad joke on here. <laughs> what that, what, what's the mindset of an investor? What does it say about the investor's mindset if he's demanding a guaranteed return? And what does it say about the financial position of the entity that's offering that return? I mean, is this a situation where, you know, desperate times require desperate things? Like this, like, I mean, come on, like, this is, this is outrageous. Well, but more in, curiously, why did Blackstone go up, the stock it go up on this news? Because you, the, the investors are heaving a sigh of relief that they got away with another one? I mean, so the answer is I, I, I don't know, except they're unregulated and opaque. And even if they were regulated, what would the SEC do anyway? Uh, so, 
You know, George, there, let me just add one th last thing. There, there, there are two variables to a credit cycle development. The, the first is when liquidity is withdrawn, you see a devaluation in the you know, asset values. But then when the actual credit default cycle hits, you see a reduction in the cash flows. And what we've had so far is just the, the liquidity events. And to the extent that some of these private equity companies had a lot of locked in funds, they've been able to manage that part relatively well. By the middle of this year is my belief that we're going to start to see the cash flows and the credit defaults really impinge on their valuations. So yeah, I'd like to be short the private you know, equity guys. Got it. So uh, one other question, then we're going to bring some of the audience in. Um, I know when you and I were spoken earlier today, Charlie, uh, you were mentioning, I guess, what Jeffries had, Jeffries, um, had the numbers out yesterday. They did. Yeah. Talk a little bit about what was in the Jeffries numbers and how are you thinking about investment banks? I mean, Goldman announced another layoff, et cetera, et cetera. So what's going on with respect to investment banks and, and, and trading income and all that kind of stuff? Sure. You know, we use Jeffries as sort of a precursor as to what we're going to see for the, the big banks like, you know, Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley and JP Morgan, um, because Jeffries reports, you know, before the others, because they have a year, fiscal year end of November. <coughs> so Jeffries last night after the close reported 58% decline in, in net income on an 18% drop in revenues. And to no one's surprise, you know, we expected it to be weak. And it was weak for all the obvious reasons that, you know, you would expect in that it was investment banking revenues were down 53% year over year. Um, that was partially offset by, you know, a 13% rise in trading. So, you know, you did have some bright spots, particularly in fixed income trading, um, but you had a lot of weakness throughout the capital markets, you know, mergers and acquisition, equity and debt underwriting, and even equity trading was not that strong. So, but the other part that um, we were just sort of alluding to is their merchant banking income was cut in half from third quarter to fourth quarter. And that's, you know, where you're starting to see some of the pressure on these private equity positions. Um, so, you know, the numbers, as I said, probably are not out of whack with what we're expecting for Goldman and, and Morgan Stanley. Um, but they do confirm that there's, there is going to be weakness. What is different in terms of the mindset out there is the investment banking revenues are running today here in the fourth quarter below the 2019 levels. And there's a real strong belief out there that the 2019 levels are a floor. And therefore, there's this big rebound that's going to come in investment banking in 2023. And so some of the investors out there have been holding on to their Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley's on that thesis that they're going to get this big rebound in investment banking. Um, I'm not one of those that believe that we're going to get a big rebound. I think it's going to be more um, delayed in coming and, and more muted in its, in its rise. And, and then the other part of the, the equation is what's happening on the trading front. You know, fixed income trading, what we call FIC trading, fixed income commodities and currencies, um, that has been incredibly robust um, last year and the year before. 
And we think we're going to see double digit, you know, 20% plus declines in fixed income trading in 23 versus 22. The importance of that is trading revenues are multiples bigger than investment banking revenues. So if you get a 20% drop in fixed income trading next year, you got to have a 30 or 40% rise in investment banking just to stay even. And we just don't think we're going to see that kind of rise. So we think the whole capital markets are going to be a drag on revenues in 23. Got it. Makes sense. Okay. So let's open it up to um, some of the, some, to some of our friends here in the room. Uh, I see we've got some sharp cookies up here. Ready? We're going to go in order. Uh, Urs is going to go first and then Rob and then Bob Klein. Urs, uh, welcome. Good to see you, my friend. What's up? Thank you so much, George. Uh, hi, Brad. And hi, uh, Charlie. It's been a long time since we worked together at UBS. And here in Switzerland, hi, hi. So my question I have is, what are your assumptions how long the Fed will keep rates as high as they are once they hit the peak? And, you know, everybody's looking for that famous pivot. And if rates are staying up longer, what impact will it have in your assumptions? Or is... Um... I don't know if that's uh, French for bear, but it, it sounds like you're a bear. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, yeah, you know, um, the assumption is that rates will remain, you know, towards that 5% level through at least the third quarter of this year. We think the recession will force the, the Fed to start easing by year end 23. Um, so we're not anticipating a pivot anytime in the first half of this year. Um, but we think the pivot could come in the fourth quarter. And I'm also of the opinion that Powell is, has not grown a pair of balls in, at all. Um, he's doing what he is easy to do, but when the times get tough, he'll, he'll fold. Or, or is, does that answer your question? Yes, it did. And uh, yes, actually, or stands for bear. That's to pas français alors. I'm trying my best uh, to get away from that image, though. <laughs> Thank you so much. Okay, by, by the way, Charlie, one of these days we're going to lose space. We're just going to have Oris talk because I think he was he was around in the stock market crash in 29. He he's like seen everything, so he's like, he's like the wise old man of the forest. So um, it's always great when he shows up. Um, all right, let's go now to Rob Isbitz and then Bob Klein. Rob, good to see you. What's up, my friend? Hey, thanks a lot, George. Yeah, I guess, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm, I was born a Gemini. You definitely won't mistake me these days for a Taurus, if you know what I mean. Um, <laughs> so uh, anyway, uh, George, Charlie, Brett, thanks for doing this. George knows my bread and butter is things like technical sentiment. So my quick statement and my question is from that angle. 2008, sure. the aftermath memory unless you manage money through it right uh and if i recall the public reaction to the financial system and the anger there was called occupy wall street not occupy main street right they were pissed at wall street and the financial sector and the big boys okay mm -hmm. so can you speak this time around charlie or brett or both uh to investor preparedness if we get another 20 to 30 percent drop in the stock market which a lot of this on this call thinks inevitable because since you're saying conditions for the financials are a lot better than in 08 will investors make that distinction this time around or will they panic kind of making financial stocks guilty by association in their history or 
Are they more likely to just kind of close their eyes and hope, which is kind of what they've done about everything else the past few years? Thank you. Yeah, no, they're going to cut and run. I mean, they, they always have, they, you know, sell first and ask questions later. Um, so, yeah, I, I, listen, it's, it, while I'm constructive between now and, let's say, April, I think these things could go, you know, and, and let's say they go up 15 to 20 percent between now and April. They're going to go back and revisit at least their July lows of 2022. So I don't know what that is, a 40 percent mm -hmm. drop or something like mm -hmm. that. So yeah, I, I, you know, you get me into May, and I'm I'm a seller of bank stocks because the credit cycle is coming, and the portfolio managers, as you alluded to, are going to sell and and ask questions later because they're, you know, bank balance sheets. As much as I'm constructive on the risk management practices this cycle, bank balance sheets are black boxes, and there's a lot of things that we do not, as analysts that follow this industry very closely, do not see coming. I mean, we didn't see Archegos coming. You know, there's, there's going to be a lot of this counterparty risk with, with um, financial counterparties that levered up too much. And they're going to blow up. And, uh, you know, and that gets back to Orr's question. The, the longer rates remain higher, the more um, detrimental that is to balance sheets and cash flows. The question is, why haven't more people hit the down the, the dashboard already? You know, why yeah, aren't there more archigos out going on right now? You know, real, real is, Sorry, go ahead. Yep, Charlie. Just one more thing, just to follow up on this. Um, I mean, kind of like the, uh, the 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 old Groucho Marx uh, show. You you bet your life. Okay, I think I think you just said the magic word, right? Um, uh, counterparty risk. So, yep. so is it isn't that sort of the what leads to the bear tail on this whole thing? And and I'm sorry. Uh, I think. Uh, please, thank you for the time. No, no, you're you're absolutely right. Uh, uh, there there is a counterparty risk out there that we have been writing about that we are not going to be able to see coming. Um, and and so if you look at the 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 prime brokerage books of these big, you know, brokers like Goldman and, and Morgan Stanley, they've been growing like weeds. Same with JP Morgan. Um, now I tend to have some respect for JP Morgan's risk management practices, although they did get caught by the London whale, if you recall. Um, so they're, they're not immune to these things. What, what, all I'm trying to put in perspective is the earnings power, the capital capacity, <laughs> and the lower risk profiles that we can identify of the balance sheets, which gives them, you know, a, a higher probability of coming through this recession with their balance sheet intact. Maybe earnings do take a hit along the way, which is why I want to get out of the way at some point, you know, this spring. But but the balance sheet, I have a, a much higher degree of, of confidence is going to come through intact. Um, you know, the, the other credit issue that all these credit issues are out there visible um, to the extent that, you know, we follow them, but they have long tails. Commercial real estate is something we're actually very bearish on. But the, if you had shorted commercial real estate, you know, for, from a bank perspective back in the, you know, first half of 2022, you wouldn't have made a lot of money. It, it, the, the, tail, the tail process or the the slow burning fuse is taking a lot longer than I think anyone anticipated. Even, even QT, everyone talked about QT, how it was going to devastate, you know, the economy because of all this liquidity is coming out. 
for the first time, maybe Janet Yellen's been right. It's been like watching paint dry. It really has not been a, a huge event day one, put it that way. Right. It will be over time. By the way, before we get to Bob, Charlie, I just want to follow up on the one point you made. So let's talk about commercial real estate a little bit. Um, you know, you look, I think there was a paper, I'm sure you saw it, and we all read the same stuff. There was that paper, I think it was in June of last year from NYU, where they guesstimated a number of, I think, $500 billion, uh, $500 billion decline in the value of uh, New York City commercial real estate. Uh, New York being the largest market. Who knows if it's, I mean, the aim here is not precision, it's accuracy. I mean, it's big. It's really big, all right? And, and you read all the stories, what's going on in San Francisco, this place, that place. And just the whole structural change in um, the way we work, where we play, where we live, et cetera, because I work from home and all, the, and all, and all of that. Um, and so you look at, you look at REITs and I don't think you guys follow REITs, but you know, it's just like, to your point, I mean, there's no way in hell I would ever own any of those things, but trying to make money shorting those things, like there's easier, just there's easier, quicker ways to make a buck than that. But do you, do you, you, could you just drill down a little bit further? You said you're pretty bearish on the, on the long-term outlook for, um, commercial real estate and obviously, you know, the collateral value there, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, do you think, do you, but do you think it's a sufficiently long, a sufficiently long tail that it's not going to put the banks in harm's way, you know, immediately, like they can sort of amortize this problem? Like, how do you think about commercial real estate? Yeah, I mean, for, for the last 12 months, maybe even 15 months, banks have been trying to work down their commercial real estate exposure. So they they know the issue is going to arise as a credit issue. <coughs> Excuse me. Um and they've, they've been trying to pare back their exposures. Um, and, and I think private credit has stepped up in, in that gap. Um, Brent, I, I forget who it was, someone was bragging about how they've had plenty of opportunities to lend on properties um, because the banking system has you know, vacated the space. So- That was Apollo. Yeah, it was Apollo, okay. Um, so yeah, and, and then there are games being played where you know some of these you know real estate lenders are um, not not lenders the developers are buying out. Um, oh, Brent, I'll let you since this is your bailiwick. I'll let you finish that story. So, it, it, Charlie SL Green does one Vanderbilt, which is a beautiful building near Grand Central in Manhattan, and they crowed about getting uh, Carlisle Group as a, a major tenant. But what they didn't tell was that they paid $100 million to buy out the lease from Brookfield that Carlisle had up, up, the, up the street. They paid, maybe it was $200 million, but they paid a large sum to, to lure Carlisle into that building so they could claim that they've got 90% leased up. Those are the types of games we're seeing. What kind of cash flow analysis is that? That's just, it's, it's, it's sort of the same thing that we saw with the B-REIT. I want to mention one thing about Hudson Yard. You can see that from my apartment building in, in Chelsea. $25 billion project. It's got more office space than downtown Phoenix. And I actually can see see-through office buildings in Manhattan. But you're not seeing that in the headlines. I guess they quote-unquote forgot to put that in. <laughs> you know, George, I may be skipping ahead here, but the, the way we see the credit cycle playing out um, is it's going to emerge first on the consumer front. And 
every cycle has something different about it. Um, and every cycle, sometimes the consumer leads, sometimes the corporate leads. Um, this cycle, we think the consumer will lead in terms of the credit deterioration. And then from a product perspective, we think the auto um, lending areas where the real shit's going to hit the fan today, tomorrow, you know, the next quarter, it, it already is. I mean, you can see it. And, and it's because a lot of uh, lenders were lending 150 to 160% LTV loan to values. And now you're seeing, you know, a 15% drop in, in used car values year over year in the Mannheim index. So a lot of that um, excessive loan to value in the auto industry in terms of a, a lending capacity is going to take big principal hits. Um, the banks are really good at, at playing games of trying to postpone the recognition of that hit, but we're now coming to the point where they can't do it anymore. And I, I can go into all those strategies if you want. But um, so the auto industry, the auto lending part of the, the, the credit cycle is already hitting balance sheets right now. It, this will be followed up by the spring of this year where the credit card losses will start to accelerate. Um, the last thing to be hit on the consumer side, you know, credit cards and personal loans will be starting to sour by the spring of this year. Um, the last thing to be hit will be the residential real estate market. And, and quite honestly, I'm from a principal loss perspective, I'm not as bearish uh, about the bank's underwriting because contrary to what they did in 08, 09, they've tried to keep to near prime, prime and super prime type of customers. And they've, you know, underwritten on 70% LTVs, sometimes 80%. But so I, I think the principal loss, even though I, I think we're going to see deflation in housing prices, the principal loss that banks experience will be fairly muted, you know, maybe five, 10 basis points. Um, that transition by the spring in the second half will then transition to the corporate sector. So I, I'll right. leave it there. That, that, that's great. That's great. Very helpful. Okay, let's go. My good friend, Bob Klein. Bob, good to see you. Um, please unmute yourself. What's on your mind, Bob? Thanks, George. Uh, Charlie and Brett, I know you guys are at heart credit guys. And I, I wanted to, to ask you if there's any, uh, any glimmer of credit culture left at any of the major banks. I, you know... <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, Wells Fargo back in the 90s and early 2000s with Mike Laughlin, their chief credit officer, and he was just a, a real keeper of the flame of credit, uh, the credit culture. And then you had Wachovia, which was just a, a you know, before they were uh, purchased by, I think, First Union. Uh, I mean, they were just marvel at, at uh, protecting credit and and and. Bob, you go away back, don't you? <laughs> yeah, but so so. What I want to know now is: there anyone left? Are there? Is there any? Or have they all been kind of chased out by the gunslingers that have been fueled by the Fed? You know, Fed's easy money, so they just made it so that it didn't pay. You couldn't you couldn't hold out uh, watching credit and being careful because the gunslingers uh, made you look stupid for too long. And then I have a quick follow up. What was the uh, Brent? What was the bank where that was lending money right and left down in Texas during the old boom, and they were drinking champagne out of cowboy boots? Oh, that was um, um, 
Anyway, C anyway, first. C first was one of them, but it was Penn, no, it wasn't C Penn first. Central. Penn, yeah, Penn, yeah, Penn Square Bank and, and Continental Illinois and and yeah, First City and all those guys. Anyway, so yes, the, the culture, believe it or not, has changed dramatically from when I first started looking at banks in the '80s, and I I cut my teeth following the Texas banks. And by 1987, 88, most of the Texas banks were failing. So I learned firsthand how a bank fails. Um, so, uh, you know, Bob, I, I, I'll tell you, I, I do think the culture has changed. I, I really do. Um, I think, you know, Dodd-Frank also forced it upon the banking industry as well. Um, so I, I think, you know, as we saw in the, you know, um, pandemic banks were part of the solution. They weren't part of the problem. They were out there, you know, making their PPP loans um, to help support the economy. So I, I do think banks have some kind of religion and it's going to take another generation for them to lose it again. Um, Let me but, make three quick points here, Charlie. One, sure. I, I would praise M&T Bank as holding a, a credit culture. Number two, I would highlight J.P. Morgan as saying no to the Twitter loan and, and some of these hung loans you're seeing everyone else get hung up with, no pun intended. And third, I would argue that Wells Fargo, by virtue of the asset cap, not necessarily its own brilliance, is going to sidestep some of these major problems. That's it. Hey, Brent, Brent I'm going to try to put the cat amongst the pigeons. Just keep in mind this room is being recorded. So um, you said oh. you mentioned J.P. Morgan. They don't have hung loans. Which of the banks tend to be well hung, Brent? Uh, the, <laughs> I, I will tell you that the, the one that has been the, the one the one bank that has been spouting off the theme of responsible growth, and that that's why they you know they become the darling and the favorite is Bank America, and yet Bank America has showed up in a lot of these hung loans as the lead. And what, what's interesting about that, this goes back to culture. Um, about three or four or five years ago, uh, there was a guy that led the, the corporate and investment bank at Bank America by, by the name of Montag. And he got into a very visible spat with um, Moynihan, who's the chairman and CEO, about the fact that they were losing market share because Moynihan had put a cap on the on the balance sheet that the corporate investment bank could use, and it was capped at about six hundred billion. Well, in 2019-2020, you know, Montag finally got his way, and Moynihan unleashed him, and that balance sheet ballooned to over eight hundred billion over the next year and a half, two years. So now you're starting to see that. You'll see that here in the fourth quarter, Bank America is going to have, um, we're looking for 79 cents a share here in the fourth quarter, and they're going to have maybe 400, 500 million dollars of write downs in hung loans. Um, so there is the marketing, you know, um, gimmick of, you know, we're all about responsible growth and then there's reality. And the reality is they're going to have big, big write downs here in the fourth quarter. Got it. All right. We got murders earlier. Another really sharp cookie. My friend Porter <laughs> Collins, uh, Porter, uh, I don't. I don't want to talk to Porter. <laughs> <laughs> no, I want to interview Porter. Actually, we're gonna have Porter speak in space sometime because Porter, Porter can all teach us. Porter, not to embarrass you, always good to see you. What's on your mind, my friend? Uh, not too much. I, I'm uh, super happy to talk to Charlie. He's he's one of my favorites, and so oh, you're um, kind, Porter. So, so, so Charlie, <laughs> just like Charlie, you know, Vincent and I have been spend all day every day trying to think about the credit cycle here, and and you know. 
and where we are in the cycle. And, and, you know, history shows that just like Brent was talking about how, you know, because of the, the asset cap, you know, Wells Fargo, it's not going to get into trouble. Right. And so if you think about last cycle, PNC, because they had blew up previously, couldn't grow during into the 06, 07 cycle, you know, more stupidity and, and luck than, than, than anything else. But, um, you know, it's whoever grows the fastest into the peak that always gets killed, right? And then if you, if that's one layer, and then if you think about the second layer, the second layer is, um, you know, whatever blew up, whatever asset class blew up before is probably not going to blow up again because the underwriting is better. And so trying to think about what asset class the, the underwriting wasn't as good. And so, you know, while, while, while I think the banks are going to hold up better than the private credit who grew much uh, faster than the banks this cycle, um, you know, how do you think about credit in, in, in with that to think about? Because if you think about like a Silicon Valley, which obviously grew very fast, I think they doubled their loan book over the past uh, couple of years and mostly into, you know, venture capital, corporate, uh, corporate type lending. Um, and then, you know, some of like the First Republic obviously grew their their loan book very, very quickly into in COVID. Um, you know, how do you think about, you know, you know, credit cycles? Um, you know, because I happen to think that the, the commercial lending, you know, with, with the covenant light lending was something like I think last cycle going in was like 30 percent covenant light. And this cycle, it's something like 80 or 90 percent uh, covenant light. So. Yeah, how do you think about the cycle in that context? Mm-hmm. But when you when you're talking about covenant light, you're talking about the debt on the debt part as opposed to the senior loan part, aren't you? Um, or... Yeah, but I mean, even 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 the even the banks even the bank loans that they you know they they, they they've waived a lot of covenants um, or, or they they've been forced to have covenant light lending because because the you know because of the competition for for lo- for loan growth. Well, the, the the loan growth, as you know, Porter, has been pretty anemic for much of the decade. It's only in the last 12 or 15 months that we've seen CNI loan growth start to accelerate outside of the PPP loans. Yep. Um, so, uh, you know, that's why I'm very bearish on the private credit, private equity yep. um, portion, because they, they really did um, roll back a lot of the covenants on a lot of their, their lending. Um, I... By and large, from what I hear and, and can can see, uh, I think the banks have been pretty disciplined in their senior loan lending facilities. Now, they've also partaken in, in the debt underwriting cycle and, and um, have been part of that process. So I, I don't want to say that they haven't done stupid things, but... Um, They've been better at the moving business, in, you know, which they should have been, right? They've been, they've been moving that type of... Uh stuff rather than holding it, which is, which is good. Yeah. But every, everyone's good at moving as long as there's liquidity. It's, it's who gets caught when, when the punch bowl is withdrawn and B of A has been caught, you know, um, you know, we think that, you know, Morgan Stanley will also take, you know, a $500 million hit on their Twitter loan this quarter. So yeah, we're, we're now seeing who, who was a little excessive in their, in their, uh, you know, appetites. Um, but, you know, listen, the credit cycle, we, we're, what are we running about 20 or 30 basis points of charge offs right now for the industry, you know, for the big banks. 
And I think that's going to go to 50, 55 over the, you know, by the end of 50, 55 basis points of losses by the end of this year and then higher in, in 24. Um, and, you know, that's, you know, those are pretty reason. Those are what I would consider acceptable losses over a cycle. Um, and they're not going to impair the capital of the banking system if that's where the losses, you know, um, peak. So maybe, you know, we get back to 400 basis points of losses on credit cards, but not 700, 800 basis points. And, and yeah. that's, that's a big assumption on my part. No, I would I agree. What... I mean, like the, 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 the dodgy credit was taken by the, mostly the non-banks. I mean, the, the affirms, the upstart, I mean, they, they, they took all the, all, all capital ones, bad loans away from them. Right. Um, you know, so I, you know, the, the, the capital ones of the world never really changed their underwriting. They, they've been disciplined. You know, they'll get, they'll go, they'll go through a normal cycle as well. But I, I just think that they that um, this time it was a lot of the non-banks that, that took all the bad credit. Yeah. Listen to those guys talk, by the way, um, Apollo, for example, they'll say, oh, we're senior in the capital stack. We're short duration. And, you know, you know um, and we know what we're doing. Unlike the, the stupid banks. Ha ha ha. Um, the second thing is the CLOs, you know, B of A has been booking CLOs and calling them commercial loans. Uh, CLOs where a lot of these problems are. Yes. Yeah, we call CLOs clowns, C-L-O-W-N, collateralized loan obligations worth nothing. <laughs> All right. So, so, Charlie, I know we've got a few more minutes. We're going to keep the room going, but I know you have a, a one hour hard stop. I have two. I have two follow-up questions I'd like to ask. Um, one, and you may say, "Well, I don't follow them," which um, makes you even in a better position to speak on them because you don't have to be in print or whatever. But um, just your sort of visceral reaction and sort of pattern recognition—you've seen the movie before um, in different. You know, the, the history rhymes doesn't repeat. But do you have any thoughts about? Um, you know, Porter mentioned uh, Silicon Valley Bank, which is uh, <clears throat> on my uh, radar screen. I have a position in it, and I'm not long. Um, do you have any thoughts about, you know, either Silicon Valley Bank or some of the crypto banks? Um, you know, Silvergate, uh, Coinbase, not a bank, but it's a financial. And, you know, and if you don't have an opinion you want to express, I'm sure Brent won't be restrained. So any thoughts, Charlie? Yeah, let me start, and then Brent can, can end with Silicon Valley because he's done some work on that. But yeah, you know, we do watch the Fed's balance sheet every Thursday night. I'm an exciting guy. Every Thursday night, I pull down the Fed's balance sheet and, and dissect it. And I think it was in November, we started noticing um, fairly large borrowings from the discount window. I think it got as high as $10 billion. Um, and we wrote at that time that, you know, that, first of all, that level of, of borrowing was not a major bank type borrowing. It was clearly a... Region, you know, mid-cap, small-cap regional bank. And it was also the time, you know, of the, the crypto crisis development. And so we had highlighted, you know, the borrowing and, you know, attributed to either a mid or small-cap bank and, and the product being a crypto event. Um, and so now we, we read about Silvergate, um, you know, having had, you know, liquidity problems in the fourth quarter. And then if you looked at the Fed releases of last week, you would see they put out an advisory about to the banking system about being careful of, of what you do in the crypto space because it could lead to deposit runs. And the Fed's always good at putting things out after the fact. 
Um, so we know that there's been a, a liquidity crisis for anybody who has been, you know, attached to the crypto space. Um, and we do believe there's going to be a liquidity crisis for anybody who's been attached to the private credit, private equity space. So with that, I'll turn it over to Brent on Silicon Valley. Okay, I'll just say that Silicon Valley has a pro-cyclical, you know, free money business model, and that is reversing at the moment. So not surprising, this stock is a quarter of what it was. Uh, and so it's a dangerous short here, but this company is unraveling. And you're seeing it top line revenue. Okay, they, they, they are liability sensitive and they, they get really hurt when rates go up. Second, they get disintermediated because their their deposit base, which is normally free, uh, zero interest rate based operational deposits for these venture capital Silicon Valley type companies, uh, that deposit base gets pressured as interest rates go higher. And the third thing is that the sweep accounts um, that they claim are non-balance sheet deposits, I'm not sure they're going to be there when they really need them. So the, the bread and butter of this, of this company's business, top line revenue, is under, under pressure. The second thing is they take a lot of warrants uh, as part of their, their payments. Uh, and and those, the value of that warrants is, is, has been hurt in the past 12 months. The third thing is that their bond portfolio is vastly underwater and it's all held to maturity, which means they don't have to re, re, record it in TBV, which means it comes in a footnote in their balance sheet that their tangible book value is about a third of what they reported. Um, it's about a third of what they reported. So the, the uh, I, I'll leave it at that. But one last thing to remember is this company will start with a, a cradle company with that's being venture financed and then they'll provide uh some some working capital loans and then as the company grows through its uh um uh, birth to death process they they hire employees they need a pension plan they need uh cash management so silicon valley banks them all the way through the cycle as they grow through their their growth curve but that as the ipo cycle stops this thing, this conveyor belt stops mid-track and all of a sudden, it's not venture capital anymore. It's venture debt. And all of a sudden, <laughs> Silicon Valley is lending more to these companies. And all of a sudden, those loans start to go bad. And that, that conveyor belt just starts to empty into a giant pile of trash. So that's what's happening with Silicon Valley Bank. All right, everything's fine. Um, okay, so listen, um, Charlie, we're going to keep the room going. Um, and Brent, maybe you can stay around, but Charlie, I know you're going to um, thank you for uh, this is awesome quite a lot great and for anyone who's interested in uh, research from Portales please reach out to Brent um, you can DM him um, uh, or you can email him uh, it's bbe at portalespartnersllc.com um, I'm not going to give out his phone number because no. I don't know. He's, he's a bachelor, I think, so whatever. <laughs> so, but at any rate, at any rate. If Maybe in, you should be giving out my phone number. Uh -huh, there you go. Um, you can put one of those fake pics up there, Brent. Um, so anyway, please DM Brent if you want to learn more about what Portalis does. Charlie, I salute you. I thank you. Um, I hope this hasn't been too too tough for you. Um, and, and, and I hope you'll consider coming back again, Charlie. I think you left us. All right. Brent, are you there? I'm here. Okay. So let's talk a little bit. Let's get a little bit more granular. Um, 
if you want to name names, that's fine. But just everyone know that this is not, you know, do your own work. This is not, you know, not investment recommendations. But Brent, to the extent you want to talk about, you know, I don't know if we want to get into particular names or just sort of conceptually, let, let, let's sort of drill down a little bit further what, what Charlie was talking about. So it sounds like you guys don't like banks that are too tied to um, uh, trading tr trading revenue. Is that is that is that fair? I mean, you're, you're looking for weakness in, in, in that area going forward? So capital markets would be the, the catch term. And, and trading is actually holding up uh, nicely in the secondary markets because all the stuff that's out there uh, to trade. Um, the second thing is it's investment banking and IPOs uh, that are really, um, you know, it's moribund. And that's the 60% decline in revenues that Jeffries was reporting last night. That's happening. The question is, how long will it stay moribund? And we're very bearish on the outlook for 2023, while everyone seems to be calling back for the uh, animal spirits to return. I would also point out that in the case of Goldman Sachs, they've got a lot of venture capital, uh, private equity assets to uh, address. And with regards to Morgan Stanley, I would just say that they've been fairly aggressive in the hung loan space. We would be avoiding both of those names. Got it. And then the sort of just traditional blocking and tackling uh, bank, you know, that getting terribly creative, that's based on what Charlie and yourself were saying. It sounds like it's in pretty okay shape, though. Basic banking is, uh, if you think about it, your asset yields have just gone up dramatically and your costs have gone up very nominally. So your spreads are at gargantuan levels. Wells Fargo is going to be up 20% this year for NII. They're going to be up 20% in 2023 as well. I'm sorry. In 2022, they're going to show 20% back-to-back increases in NII. And that's very impressive. Um, so Wells Fargo, we, we like on the long side. PNC, we like on the long side. And Truist, we like on the long side. Uh, to a lesser extent, uh, J.P. Morgan. Uh, we, we are we, we have a, a kind eye towards City, which is an interesting uh, disaggregation story. And we kind of like CFG here, Citizens Financial, um, kind of in the plain vanilla regional bank that's complicating itself in an interesting fashion. So, so Brent, let me ask you, given that I think what bank earnings season starts this Friday, if I'm not mistaken, and that the recession is later rather than sooner, but the NNPR or NPPR, or you call it, thing is, is, is accelerating. Do you think on balance the uh, takeaway from uh, the earnings calls that are starting on Friday will be positive? And the answer is yes. And um, in January, everyone can be optimistic. And, and yeah, Jamie Dimon will, be, will, will, will grouse about the uh, higher interest rates, et cetera. But at the same time, as Charlie mentioned, he might be announcing a buyback. So... Uh, Wells Fargo, I think, will be offering further guidance on its uh, strong NI growth for the, the coming year. Uh, they, they took a major whack with a three and a half trillion uh, billion dollar hit, uh, settling with the CFPB. Um, but that's moving the pig through the python of regulatory uh, nightmare that they've been going through. Got it. And, uh, Let me PNC go on a completely. Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, PNC, we'd, we'd add in there as more of a plain vanilla uh, type bank uh, that we like. Got it. Let me go in a slightly different direction. And by the way, if anyone has a question, please raise your hand. Uh, 
Brent is uh, quite well spoken and experienced, so it's it's great that he's he's in the room as well. So, Brent, could you talk just a little about crypto? And, and we try not to talk about crypto in these rooms, but I want to ask a specific question about crypto, and that is, um, you know, the regulators have, uh, for whatever the reasons, I mean, the the the, the, the slow the snail's pace at which they've been approving things is actually quite good because it's. It's kept the crypto disease out of the main banking system. The, the on and off ramps have not been available. Um, and so, you know, I look at crypto and the wealth destruction that's occurred. It's nothing. It's, it's, it's really minimal. I mean, Bitcoin, roughly speaking, with 21 million coins outstanding at $17,000 a coin, you're talking onwards of a $400 billion market cap. Maybe at the peak, that was a, a quadruple, a billion six. So, you know, a billion six to four hundred billion, you know, a billion two market decline, and like big deal. I mean, <laughs> the wealth destruction in the, in the price declines of Meta and Google, you know, easily eclipse that. So it's not a systemic problem. The banking system doesn't, you know, for regulatory reasons, not have exposure to it. So I mean, I just think they should let the whole thing twist in the wind and burn down. But my question here is not to rail against crypto, more from your travels when you talk to the banks as you see it and you think about the regulators. Um, wh- how do you think this thing plays out? You think, I mean, that when, when you talk to you know senior bank guys, they're just like they think it's you know funny money, nothing to do with it. Or like, how do you think about crypto as as, as a veteran financial analyst, Brent? So the quick answer is we don't worry about it. It's outside the banking system, so it's like an asset class, like like Beanie Babies or or something else that uh, go up in value and and go down in value. It, we kind of laugh at it as being digital tulips, but because regulated uh, insured deposits are not financing this asset, we don't care. We, it doesn't affect the banking system. Now, to the extent that a crypto asset is being used and monetized to buy a house, you know, the wealth effect, you know, benefited the economy on the way up. The wealth effect will, you know, impinge it moderately on the way down, but it's not a systemic issue for us. So with regard to Silvergate, we never followed Silvergate, but their motto is all things crypto. So we'll leave it at that. Uh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't touch it. You know, it's probably too late to short it, but I wouldn't. I, why would anyone want to acquire that as an acquiring, as a acquiring institution, which is probably the end game at some point? So we're not, you know, we, we kind of view it as a diversion. You know, FTX blows up and, and no one seems to care, right? Yeah, no, for sure. For sure. Um, and by the way, as long because it is outside the banking system, by the way, I, I, we're going to have to put some quotes and some, some videos. <laughs> it's awesome. Digital tulips or, or, or I'm sure the crypto bro, like they got your email address, dude. Like they're not going to be happy. You describe these like you, you analogize them to compare it to Beanie Babies and digital tulips. But I digress. Um, the but, but to the extent that they remain outside the banking system. I mean, that's is that why when you look at, for instance, when Fidelity tries to get approval for their coin or JP Morgan, whatever, you know, the, the regulators are more than happy to just say no, because once you allow that on ramp off ramp and you still, like you say, you have deposit taking institutions, you know, their capital starts getting exposed to this stuff, then it becomes a real hornet's nest. So isn't this almost by design the way the regulators are, are, are you know, they're, they're dragging their feet, they're saying no. I mean, it's what I would do if I were them in, in the absence of serious regulation for crypto entities. Do you have any thoughts about that? I think for any regulator to take on crypto as a career mission is just a fool's errand. I mean, why would you want to do that as a, 
you know, you're sticking your neck out for something you don't understand. So that's from the regulatory standpoint. From a banking standpoint, you would want to, you know, yeah, you're, you're drooling at all the money that's chasing this fictitious asset. But the bankers, I, I, I'm not really sure how to answer that question. All right, I'll go, look, let's go to something else more tangible. Um, we haven't talked about any things international. I know you guys don't follow foreign banks, but you, Brandon, am I right? You used to follow Latin American banks back in the days. Yeah. Right? Okay, fine. So um, let's talk a little about foreign banks, be it Latin American banks, Chinese banks, Japanese banks, European banks. I mean, oh my God. I mean, it's probably just no more than the fact that German bond yields are going up, but, you know, even European banks are going up. So do you have any thoughts about foreign banks in any of these geographies relative to U.S. banks? Um, so Charlie, it, 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 he's uh, more favorably disposed towards the European banks than I've been, but um, I, I don't really feel comfortable going into that area. And then with regard to Latin America, I just want to remind you, it's the last century that I covered the Latin banks. So, uh, I mean, I look at what's happening in Brazil and I'm just, I'm horrified. Um, traditionally, the entire continent of Latin America has been a asset, a, a, a commodity-based um, play on China. And, you know, the commodities are, are responding, but the Latin banks are not. So there's some kind of disconnect there. And uh, it might have to do with the wave of populism uh, that's hitting Latin America harder than uh, it's even hitting up uh, in the United States. So I I'm, I'm a little gun shy now, even in, in Latin America, on a commodity-based uh, uh, boom that we've seen. Brazilian banks are not acting well at all. And Brent, um, isn't it fair to say that going through the last cycle, the U.S. banks, you know, there were so many initiatives were taken to try to strength, strengthen the capital structure and whatnot, that from a regulatory and capital standpoint, the U.S. banks really are far superior than a lot of these foreign banks? Yeah, I would say straight out. I think J.P. Morgan's the most powerful bank on the planet. And it used to be when, when you and I first met, George, the Swiss bank still had a, a, a tag end of respectability to them. Uh, I remember the UBS slogan, here today, here tomorrow. And, uh, you know, I'm not, you know, then they got embarrassed towards the end of the turn of the century. And, and now they're just getting back on their feet. Um, I you know, I guess the question, maybe we could come at it at a different way. You... So, Brent, let me change gears. You mentioned uh, UBS here today, here tomorrow. Um, do you, what, what's, your t what's your take on Debit Suisse? Has that just become a ward of the state? Yeah, Credit Suisse is uh, basically, you know, being liquidated in front of us. And, uh, I, I wish Michael Klein the best in terms of rebuilding re, 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 uh, uh, First Boston. That'd be very exciting. Um, coming back to that capital question, though, the banks with 12% uh, CET1 ratios, that's triple or quadruple the capital levels of the GFC, of the, of the great financial crisis. So that's number one. Number two, they've moved the end receptacle of all these assets that the banks have originated over the past 15 years have ended up in the hands of the private equity companies or non-banks. Those are the holders of the asset. So uh, the banks, Dodd-Frank actually did a number on the banks and, and 
actually hemmed them in and required higher capital ratios that we never dreamed possible. Um, so, right, you there? I'm, I'm here. Every measurement, the banks are uh, um, much better than they were 15 years ago. The U.S. banks. Amen. Amen. Um, I was going to ask you one other question. I don't know if Dave Nikoski, if you're available, but it might be interesting to share your sort of technical analysis, uh, looking at the charts, what you think of the bank. So you got the bandwidth, Dave, if you're listening, I see you're down there. If you if you want to come on up, I'm sure I'd love to hear what you have to say. But before before we go to Dave, uh, one question. Um, so Brent, you talked, you spoke before about um, how well capitalized the U.S. banks are now compared to past cycle. And, you know, one market where the housing situation is even more screwed up in the U.S. is Canada. And it's always been, you know, target of my affection. I want to go short the Canadian banks. But then I always get bummed out because I look at how well capitalized they are. And it's just, yeah, they, I certainly would never own these things. But the, the, the loan to value ratio in these Canadian banks is like considerably lower than the U.S. banks and they're better capitalized. And so I kind of don't wind up shorting them. I know many have. I think it's been working in the last few months. Do you have any thoughts on Canadian banks, Brent? Charlie is always telling me, Brent, you got to short the Canadian banks at every opportunity. So um, one of the things he mentioned was the housing market. And the second thing he mentioned was the, the inflow and the lack of the inflow of Chinese money as it reflect as it re relates to the, the value of those of that housing. Um, 100%. 100%. So, but beyond that, uh, um, all right. Well, before we go to Dave, we have someone I think who does have an opinion on Canadian banks. Uh, Porter, back to you. Well, I, you know, I, I did this. I went to this uh, Canadian housing conference I spoke about four or five years ago. And, and you know, try to, you know, this is about the same time that uh, home capital blew up. There was there was fun stuff to do around there. But I, the biggest thing about the, the capital levels look fine at, at Canadian banks and they will be fine. But the, the, I mean, the bigger point is that that it's this whole risk weighting shenanigans again. And so what the Canadians have is super low risk weightings on, on their mortgages. So it, it's more levered than it actually looks. So anyway, that's all I would say. If, you know, if, if Canadian house prices do end up falling, uh, you know, 20, 30%, I think there'd be more trouble than, than, than they lead on. But, you know, I, I, I've, I've tried successfully and unsuccessfully to short Canadian banks. I would say it is sort of a waste of time. Yeah. Given that one has limited time, limited capital, Brent Porter, my sense is like, if you could do Silicon Valley or Silvergate or Coinbase, like why would you waste your time with Canadian banks? Yeah, so I, I agree. Yeah. All right. So now, so we have uh, Dave Nikoski, um, chartist extraordinaire uh, who follows the world and so he can speak to not just u.s financials but some of the foreign financials dave good to see you uh what are you looking at how do financials look to you dave yeah i'm not a fan of the regional banks and you know they're not breaking down they're just stagnant you know they i'm a, I'm a technician by trade but cover 43 markets from around the world and everything in the u.s so um you know you have a a you know, what could be a bearish flag if, if we broke out and took out the recent lows on KRE, you know, I'm bearish. I'm not bullish the banks here or bearish them. They're just kind of a neutral territory unless you break one way or the other. Um, the strong areas within financials here in the U.S. is, you know, majority of it is insurance. Uh, 
Um, obviously, your pawn shops have been doing well. Imagine that. Um, you know, when it comes to the foreign banks, you know, I put a piece out a couple weeks ago and threw it up on Twitter on my profile. But, you know, what's, what's amazing to me is the European banks actually, as a group, are near five-year relative strength highs versus our market on an unweighted basis. So, you know, the, and you know, they've gone from negative negative yields, you know, in Europe. All right, so, so, all right, so Nikasi, I'm going to taunt you. I'm going to taunt you. I would expect that. Okay, if you look at the price relative of European <laughs> banks versus the U.S., okay? Yeah. Make that one chart, cover it up. And then I want you to take, a chart of the price relative of uh, bunds versus U.S. Treasuries, and so when you have, you know, bond yields going from negative numbers to, you know, where are they two percent now or something like that? I mean, yep. that makes the rise in U.S. bond yields look like child's play, and the market tends to treat these European banks as just leverage plays on European rates. What would your thoughts? Agree, disagree, have to agree, push back? Are you triggered? well? You know, everything to me is relative, right? If you bought a house in Idaho and it goes down 40% and you bought a house in Minnesota and it goes down 10%, you know, I'll tell you where the safer place to buy is. Um, you know, it, it is relative, but, you know, it's it's amazing to me that we would even, you know, see that type of behavior. Um, it, it, it's at least providing a hiding spot such that if it is risk, the market certainly is pricing it wrong by pushing it up you know, to relative strength highs that we haven't seen in five years. And the longer the trend that's being broken as a technician, I have to abide by, you know, the price of. Yeah, no, 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 Dave, I hear what you're saying. I actually want to turn to Porter. I mean, the way I look at it and Porter, I'll, I'll make the statement. You can agree, disagree, whatever. But I just think a lot of equity guys, they just trade those as proxies on what's happening to European bond prices. And, you know, it's not the sort of thing where, if you went to visit Deutsche Bank or Debit Suisse or UBS or whatever, you'd say, oh, this thing is great. I want to own this thing. I mean, these are, Dave, these are trading sardines, not eating sardines. Porter, what, do you, what would you say? I totally agree. I mean, the, the biggest thing for, I mean, it, it was just think they were going from negative rates uh, to positive rates. And to, to be fair, like I didn't, I didn't play it because I kind of feel the same way, but it was a great trade and it might still work because, you you can't make money if there's negative yields, right? This doesn't nothing works, and so they're actually getting back to somewhat closer to reality of maybe these guys can earn some sort of cost of capital. So you know they, they they're trading at you know they go from sixty percent a book to eighty percent a book, and that works, uh, you know. But um, so that's that's sort of the way I think about it. But 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 you know. The, the reality of the of the of the last five years where we had negative sovereign yields is just batshit crazy, and so yeah. so we're 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 moving from batshit crazy to maybe some sort of normalized uh, world. That's a great way of putting it. Yeah, and I I would put it that way too. I'm I'm not you know my my view is is not that you have to buy them, but just be cognizant of it. It's kind of like looking at the home builders. And saying, you know, they're at relative strength highs, 52-week relative strength highs across the board. But yet we all know there's a housing crisis. You know, I as a technician have to show it and say, hey, you know, I, I think there's, you know, possibly another shoe to drop. But I can't ignore that that's what is happening. Yeah, no, Dave, Dave, cognizant, I, so. yeah, Dave, Dave 100% agree. It's that concept. I think it was Einstein who ever said it, you know, 
the ability to have two opposite thoughts in your head, the technicals maybe on one side and the fundamentals on the other. I mean, you know, I, I, I think it was Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. I'm sure Porter has owned this stock. I'm, I'm, I'm too polite to ask him if he's, if, he's, if he's short. It doesn't really matter. I know he would never own this stock. I look at Zillow, all right? So Bank of America came out with a upward revision, whatever. They took it from, I don't know, sell to neutral, neutral to buy, where the hell it was. And the stock's up like, you know, 8% yesterday and up more today, right? You know, they're just dead in the water. I mean, I get it's it, it, it trades as a as a proxy on, on rates and, and, and housing in turn trades as a proxy on, on, on rates. You have macro tourists that go in and out of these sectors. But, like, just there's no freaking way I would ever own Zillow. Porter, you, you got any thoughts on that? Totally agree. I mean, you know, as, as, as a, you know, you have a huge universe of, of stocks to pick from. I don't know why you would want to play Zillow here. I mean, the housing market's dead for the next, call it, two or three years. And, and the same thing yeah. with the builders. Like, they're, they're, yeah, they look great on the charts and Dr. Horton looks great, you know, but I, I'd much rather wait three or four months and short the crap out of it or maybe even a month. Yeah. I, I don't know what it ever it is, but, you know, the, yeah. the, and I, I, the, I, I think what's great about Dave's work, I mean, look, Dave's not going to buy every stock he has has a decent looking chart. He wants some of the fundamentals. Equally, you know, when you and I are reported, we're like, oh, shit, we're losing money or shorts. What's going on? And Dave can say, well, look at the freaking chart. It just went down, you know, a million percent. It could double and still be down, you know. You know, what's the definition of a, of a stock that's down 80 percent? It's, you know, something that was down 90 and then it doubled. Okay, so you, you have to have, I think, a holistic approach to these things. And that's why I think the work Dave does is so terrific. Um, as I like to say, Dave, you can't dance with all the girls. Supporters point, you know, why not buy why, why not buy a company that's got a good chart and a good fundamental story as opposed to some piece of crap, which is a complete trading sardine, where I promise Absolutely. you, where I promise you, the minute rates stop going up in Germany, Deutsche Bank will fall so fast it'll make your head spin. Um, yeah, and you know, um, it was brought up about Latin America. You know, like Argentinian banks are on fire. You know, obviously with what's happening in Brazil. You know, you in you know as as well as I, looking at currency crashes. You know, on foreign currencies, you know, the Brazilian real has been, you know, extraordinarily weak relative to other emerging market currencies. And, you know, that that appears to start to be shifting based on what I'm seeing, that you're seeing some topping out patterns in the euro versus the real and the and the U.S. dollar versus the real where you're starting to get some weakness. You know, Brazil had a great day today. Um, I, I, I think that the, I think everyone and their grandmother hates the place. I think, you know, it's, it's kind of like going back to the Asian contagion, the time you wanted to buy Korea, you know, where, was when the tanks were rolling out in the street. And I feel like that's a possibility, especially with their commodity structure in Brazil. I, I just think that, you know, the, the possibility that we're going to see higher commodity prices, I, I think is going to continue. Um, emerging markets, you know, you had on a guest, uh, not Michael Belkin, but uh, another Michael Howell, Michael Howell, you know, and, you know, he indicated that liquidity was increasing around the globe. And I, I think you are getting increased glo- uh, liquidity around the globe when foreign currencies are tightening. Um, I've been a big proponent of the emerging markets since October. Couldn't talk anyone into it. Couldn't get anyone to raise their hand. You know, they're they're on fire and it's not just China. It's not just China. I'm telling you, it's not just China. Um, you know, I have to go where, you know, money flows are going and it shows up in the charts. 
Hundred percent, hundred percent, Dave. Yeah. Hey, let's and get George, right. and George. And some, something, sometimes things don't make any sense at all. Sometimes they do, right? In terms of Brazil, I think the Brazilian ten years thirteen and a half percent. The you know debt to GDP is half of what is in the United States, and you know they, they have better growth. And so, you know, and 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 you know Brazil's starting to work. That that sort of makes sense to me, right? And and the valuations are have been beaten down, and and they started hiking a lot you know, sooner than the U S fed did. And so now that they're coming to coming out of the, or maybe coming out of the other side of this, that, that makes sense to me. Supporter. see me, if we did an AB test here, we got those Brazilian type of setups you're talking about on the one hand, this yep. is just, okay. And then we have, you know, electric car company, the $380 billion market <laughs> cap with collapsing estimates and a disappearing backlog. Like it's not even a question, which one you'd be long versus short. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, listen, the, 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 as we figured out this, you know, the insanity can last longer than, than, you know, most of us have normal time frames of. So it's, uh, but. 100%. 100%. Well, all right, let's go to, hey, Rob, you got your hand up. Rob, please speak up, my friend. Yep, sure. Thanks. Um, and I mean, I don't know if Dave Nikoski will admit to this also, but I, you know, I'm an admitted chartaholic, so I couldn't help but go through a lot of this stuff. In fact, I was, I went through the S&P 100 last night, thinking about this conversation, especially then focused in on the banks. I was going through some of the stuff here. I'll just kind of give you my conclusions, either for Dave to comment on, uh, for Brett to comment on, or for anybody to comment on, or just to move on. Um, so, you know, I look for patterns, and I, 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 everything I do, it, it starts with fundamental and quantitative screening, um, but it all ends up with technicals. To me, it's kind of like NFL on Sunday. You can practice all week. But at the end of the day, the scoreboard on Sunday is what matters. That's the analogy I've used for years. So uh, one of the names that uh, uh, that I believe uh, the folks brought up uh, was Citizens, uh, CFG. And I do see at least what I would call an intermediate term, hopeful bullish pattern. There's got some momentum and let's call it a little bit discounted, which is always not bad. Technical value, I might call it. Uh, and you know, you've got it with CFG, you've got it with things like uh, PNC, uh, uh, BK, uh, Bank of New York, uh, KeyBank, U.S. Uh, Bank Corp, Cincinnati Financial. What do those all have in common? I guess I would refer to them uh, and also defer to a lot of the fundamental-oriented folks here. I would call them kind of second-tier banks, not demeaning their quality at all. In fact, they're not money center banks. Uh, they're not tiny, tiny, you know, uh, uh, community banks. Uh, and that, to me, was the number one area. And I will also add that I absolutely hate, and maybe this is from, I don't know, 12, 15 years ago, I hate the big banks. I, I avoid them like the plague. Yet I can't help but see that Citigroup and, to some degree, J.P. Morgan don't look bad. Last thing I'll say here. Um, some of the other areas that look especially awful right now are things like um, Capital One and um, uh, I guess the other one, symbol MTB, M&T Bank. Um, you know, so there's there's a there's a mixed bag there. Even American Express, T. Rowe Price don't look bad. And I don't know. Maybe somebody knows what MKTX is. I mean, I, I can read it as market access holdings. Um that one looks like it's high risk, very high reward. Um, and so to me, financials are a mixed bag right now, but those 
second tier banks, if you will, who probably don't have a lot of the problems that the big name money center Occupy Wall Street banks have. Uh, there's something going on there, at least on a relative basis. So, Rob, Rob I think I, I think you're spot on, Dave. Uh, when you look at the subsectors in financials, and you listen to Rob, like like, how does that speak to you, Dave? Uh, he's right on. I mean, I've got the same names. We, I, I go through the Russell 1000 and the Russell 2000 every week. I just got done going through it this morning. Um, we got we got a virtual all day yesterday, then, dude. So you know, MKTX actually, I th- I think I threw it out on my Twitter profile probably like last week before the big move. Um, I'm pretty sure I tossed that one out there. But yeah, BK is one that you know I've got in here. So I I, I do them by. I go through all the names, roll them out by sector. So, you know, I've got a lot of names, you know, on the bottom fishing candidate, you know, key bank is in there. Um, PB, you know, CFG, uh, FHB, FNF, uh, SLM. I mean, and some other ones, us bank corp actually made, made the list in the, in kind of the, you know, rolling over and getting, uh, you know, close to the 200 day, but you know, it's mostly brokers, the CBO, um, BOKF is in positive uh, inflection. So basing, um, Aon, Allstate, you know, I put a piece out today on a lot of the insurance names. It's like my fourth time doing it. You know, RE on the reinsurance side, HIG, Chubb, um, AJG, Aflac, you know, are all in my positive trending, WRB and WLI. Um, on my larger cap side. So, yeah, let me let me interrupt for one second. This is for Dave or Porter or Rob or Brent. Uh, one of the listeners uh, in the room, and I don't know this bank, they threw me a question. They said, um, can you ask about Signature Bank? There is risk around their crypto exposure. Is anybody on the stage? <laughs> Run. <Sorry>? Run. <laughs> Run? Yeah. I, I, I don't like sorry. that. I yeah. like that in a long time. Go ahead, Dave. I haven't liked that in a long time. And yes, it's in my, you know, definitely in a downtrend. I mean, I, not something I would ever look at until I see. Port, I think you've been triggered. What what, what say you? Well, it's, it's pretty simple that they have, they have $23 billion of crypto deposits. That's that. There's your answer right there. (laughs) Thank you. Man, a few words presented over that comment. George, George, is that a lot? No, just kidding. Uh, uh, should, the, uh, of course, I got a I got a spam call interruption. And I didn't hear the ticker. So what no, was we it? were talking about we were we were talking about signature bank. Signature oh bank. yes, I did. I sort of passed by that one. I was like, yeah, I don't want to talk about this one. Uh, um, signature is yeah SBNY. Okay. Uh, yes, it's uh, doing doing the dance of death. Technically. Yeah. So okay. So so okay. So now I'm gonna throw. A name in the pile, which exemplifies, um, again, this is do your own work. Um, You know, I'm involved in this name, not Signature Bank. I'm involved in this name. I'm not long. I wish I wasn't in that position the last couple days. But Dave Nikoski, Coinbase. (laughs) So this is one you got to split your head in half because art's one thing. But the fundamentals, man, like don't even get me started. So what's Yeah, I mean – Go ahead. Te- technically, you're breaking a two month downtrend, and you know it's like you're coming up on the fifty day. You know, if you break through the fifty, I mean, it's it's something I would say. You know, you just have to let it play out. Um, 
I mean, the long term is in a downtrend until fifty dollars. You know, if you're short it, do you want to wait until fifty? Yeah, I, I, I hear you. I hear you. Full disclo- yeah. full disclosure. Uh, uh, I loved Coinbase last year because it has listed put options, <laughs> and, that's, <laughs> and that's all I'll say. But no, the, the uh, look. The uh, and I actually I wrote a, one of my Seeking Alpha articles on this uh, recently. It was about the S and P five hundred, but it's the same damn pattern you see everywhere, uh, uh, George and Dave. And I see it with Coinbase here too. Yeah, climbing the wall of worry, etc. But uh, you can go back to November, looks like of uh, twenty one, uh, a couple months before you know everything hit the fan. Um, and you've got a really, really hard, thick trend line, um, downward trend line. And, uh, you know, that is that it has kind of been uh, the, the juice that has allowed a lot of these things to bounce. And just when you think it's turning around and, oh, new bull market, et cetera, just like the S&P is getting close to right now, not too far away, all of a sudden, wham. Okay, whether you know, whether it's the news, it's so yeah. I mean, Coinbase is still sort of in that no man's land uh, where yeah. I mean, it could it could rally uh, a chunk further, um, but again, you know, we know how the math of loss works, right? I mean, when you're down a zillion percent and you make twenty or thirty percent on a bounce, you know, you. You, you didn't just turn $100 into something, you know, you turned $20 into something. And it's a little bit less in real life. Hey, one thing we haven't talked about, we've talked about the, the big investment banks, but, you know, we haven't brought up like the Raymond James, Piper Jaffrey, you know, Houlihan, Loki, Evercore absolutely look fantastic. I mean, across the board, Evercore's EVR, you know, H, I, I mentioned on a call, the Cantrell and I were on a call last night. We were going back and forth uh, for on a number of areas in the market. Didn't discuss these, but, you know, Houlihan, Loki, HLI, you know, I, I think you're going to see a lot of M&A activity this year. Right. It, that's where I would be looking for, you know, right. the next cycle to take place. With, with the on EVR for sure. At least look yep. at the chart. Don't know, you know, don't know too well. Raymond James, RJF. I yep. mean, you know, it's not, it looks a lot better than, you know, the banks themselves. So, got it. All right. So I'm going to, I'm going to Brent, if you're still, I don't know if you, you're, yeah, I'm here. I, I want to say one thing on, on yep. Hulahan, which is they are a restructuring and, uh, they, they fix broken companies as well as doing MA. So that's a, a big plus them i mentioned that on a call last week that investment banking and restructuring and Hulahan loki was the name i gave so yep there you go all right listen brent i hope this has been fantastic i hope uh you've enjoyed it as much as we have we've learned a lot and i hope you'll consider coming back to this room if not as a speaker just come in the room and be one of the elves and hang out a lot of really smart people we learn a lot from each other and so i want to thank you uh and as well as charlie i know charlie's not here but it was terrific and um, again, I, I hope you'll consider coming back. If, 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 you're, if one is interested in learning more about Portalis and what uh, uh, Charlie and Brent do, uh, please reach out to Brent um, through direct message, uh, as well as you can email him. Uh, Brent, you want to give your email address, please? B-B-E at PortalisPartnersLLC.com. Great. And um, yeah, so this, look, this has been a great room. Very timely. 
Um, be really curious to see how things play out. Um, and so, that's, again, it's terrific. So I want to thank everyone. Thank you, Brent. George, uh, thank you great. very much. This is a, an amazing crowd you assembled, and, I, and we're grateful. Thank it's you. Terrific. Thanks. All right. All right. Tonight, everyone, we'll be doing another room. I can't remember our next one is, but we'll be together within the next couple of days. Tonight, everyone, take care. Bye-bye.